I want to begin by introducing the text to us by basically picking one word that I'm going to focus on a bit today, and that's the word safe. The word safe is a very important word in South Africa. People are very worried about being safe because the crime level is very high. However, as I talk to people, I want to, I always try to bring them into, into focus or put in front of them the reality that your physical safety is not the most important safety that you, in fact, need to deal with. There are far more important questions to address than matters of mere physical safety. And in fact, the safety question that addresses or transcends rather all other questions is this question. Are you safe with God? That's the most important question that could ever be asked. Are you safe with God? Now, for sinners, you may never have thought of it this way, but for sinners, God is the most dangerous thing in the universe. No poison, no person, no explosive, no natural disaster, nothing else comes even close. God is dangerous which is really just another way of saying that God is holy. Remember Manoah, the father of Samson, got it right when he and his wife saw the angel of the Lord. He said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. No one and nothing is more dangerous to unholy sinners than a holy God. I can perhaps sum that up in this way. Hell is the most dangerous place in the universe. And that's where God sends sinners who refuse to repent and follow Christ. Jesus himself said, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, the wonder and the joy and the glory of salvation is that at the cross, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, God the Son, he made the dangerous holy God safe for us. He took God's wrath at our sin so that all that is left for those who believe in him is love. It might be a chastising love at times when we go astray, but Jesus is the sponge that soaked up the dangerous wrath of God. In fact, the Apostle John said, by this love is perfected with us so that we might have confidence on the day of judgment. See, forgiven sinners, sinners who have been washed by the grace of Christ, they will not stand before the dangerous God of the universe in knee-knocking terror on the day of judgment. John says we will stand before God with confidence. It is certainly not self-confidence, not at all. John said in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. Fear involves punishment. Therefore, since Christ took our punishment, then fear has been cast out. Now, let me qualify that just for a second and say there there is a very real and biblical sense in which we fear God and fear the Lord, and that is an ongoing thing, that proverbial sense of the fear of God, that kind of awestruck wonder fear at the infinite majesty of God, that's always appropriate, always appropriate for believers in Jesus Christ. But for Christians, a stomach-wrenching, incapacitating terror at the thought of God's, God's judgment, that's not appropriate. When Christ took your punishments, he took your fear. In Christ, then, the dangerous God became safe for us. In fact, indeed, he became even a loving, caring, compassionate father. 
Now, some people, even after their salvation, still kick against this idea of being safe with God. In fact, Paul wrote Romans 5 through 8 to address this subject with believers, to assure those who truly believe in Jesus Christ that they are safe with God. He wrote chapter 6 to make sure you don't abuse that. Shall we sin more that grace may increase? Absolutely not, says Paul. But he wants you to know that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5. And he carries that theme all the way through to chapter 8 as well. We'll see that in just a moment. Some people, however, still want to kick against that idea of being safe with God after they come to salvation. They live in mortal terror of losing their salvation. Their passport has been stamped. They are now a citizen of God's kingdom, but somehow they think that God might revoke their visa. That God might deport them. They fear that their salvation will be lost or it will be stolen. Saved by grace, they want to stay saved by works, by their efforts, by their goodness. And therefore they fear. They fear that in the final tally of sin, the final tally of righteousness, their own efforts, that somehow they'll fall short. And therefore they spend their whole life feeling unsafe with God. I can use this illustration. They're kind of like a a dog whose previous master beat it. They cringe every time the master, capital M, reaches out with a caress of love and comfort. They cringe away in fear. Is that how the Christian life is to be lived? Is that how we are to live in this cringing fear of God's punishment and God's judgment? This is a critical question. It's a life-changing question, and it's a huge biblical question that's addressed all over the New Testament. Are you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are you safe with God? Are you safe with God? Can your salvation be lost or stolen or misplaced? Or does faith in Christ bring with it a certainty, a wondrous relief, a refreshing trust, a heart-calming certainty that a Christian is perfectly safe in the arms of an eternally loving and forgiving Father? Well, today I want to answer that question. Does salvation bring with it that relief? By looking at the end of Romans chapter 8. As I said, we'll be looking at the closing verses of the chapter. Let me begin you at the opening verse of the chapter. The question is, are you safe with God? We already talked about Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds safe. Well, how about Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation... For those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's good news because Paul spent Romans 1 and 2, the first two chapters of this great epistle, telling us that indeed as sinners we're not safe with God. The wrath of God, he says, is being revealed right now from heaven against all ungodliness. The pagans in chapter 1, they weren't safe. The the religious people in chapter 2, they weren't safe either. Only faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His death on the cross for our sins, only that makes us safe. Those who have repented and followed Christ are indeed safe, though, because of Jesus' substitute sacrifice. Again, Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, well, how can that be? Verse 3, For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, the weakness was ours, not the words. What we couldn't do, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Fully human, 
no sin. In the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In verses 4 through 17, Paul said that Christians are utterly and perfectly safe with God because we have the indwelling spirit of God within us. Pick out verse 15 as an example. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verses 18 through 25 of Romans 8, Paul said that we're safe in our eternal hope. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Things are bad now, he says. Don't worry. The glory that's coming is greater. God will not withhold it from us. We are safe because the Spirit is busy interceding for us. Verse 26 of Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In verses 28 through 30, Paul says that we're safe with God because God has this eternal, no revisions possible plan. God's daytimer, some of you old enough to remember what a daytimer was. God's daytimer, your life is not written in pencil. He can write it in pen because it never changes, never makes a mistake. It's in ink. He never has to worry about erasing it. It is sure, it is secure, it is guaranteed from beginning to end, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Well, how can we know that, Paul? Verse 29, for, is the reason, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So that he, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the wonderful thing about those verses is that there's no interruption possible in that process. In the links of those chain, there's no possibility of breaking one link. No interloper can come in and disrupt that process. The verbs are all gloriously in the past tense in the original. As far as God is concerned, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your glorification already happens. That's how sure it is. From eternity past to eternity future, with God, the believer in Jesus Christ is safe all the way through. No baby in a mother's womb is more protected more secure than one of God's children. For those in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. We are safe with God. Now, all that leads us up to the text, the verses that we want to look at today. And these verses, verse 31 and following, are really the marvelous crescendo of the symphony of this chapter. These verses are perhaps the most exhilarating and comforting nine verses in all the Bible. Let's read them. Follow along as I read. I'm reading the New American Standard. Probably many of you are reading the SV. They're close enough. You'll be able to follow without any trouble. What then shall I say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, as you read through the text, hopefully you're able to see that this passage is, is, is framed by a series of questions. Paul's thoughts here are framed by a series of really four questions, in fact, There's an introductory question. We won't count that as one of the four. He says, what shall we say to these things? And then following that, in machine gun fashion, there are these four questions that come. One right after the other like bullets out of a gun. If God is for us, who is against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Those four questions outline Paul's thought. And they are questions about safety. Questions about safety with The holy God. Well, flowing out of these questions, then, I'd like to outline the text this way. Four reasons. I'll give you four reasons that believers in Jesus Christ are safe with God. Four reasons that believers in Jesus Christ are safe with God. Let me give you the four. We'll walk through them as we go through the text. But let me give them up front. Reason number one is God won't abandon us. Reason number two, Satan can't steal us. Reason number three that we're safe with God is Christ is defending us. God God won't abandon us. Satan can't steal us. Christ is defending us. And then fourthly, the reason we're safe with God is suffering can't separate us. Those are four reasons we're safe with God in Jesus Christ. Let's start with reason number one. Let's start with the first reason that believers in Jesus Christ are safe in the love of God. And that is God won't abandon us. Paul gives this introductory question in verse 31. It's really just a transition from everything he's been saying. He's coming up to a, a major transition at the, in the course of the book. And so he's summing up. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And you say, well, what things? Well, everything he's been highlighting in chapter 8 up to this point. What shall we say to the fact that we are safe with God because condemnation has been removed? What shall we say to the fact that we have the Spirit of God within us, that we have a a certain eternal hope, that we have an interceding spirit, that God has an unchangeable plan of salvation? What shall we say to that, says Paul? I would say, hallelujah, God be praised. That's what I say. But to summarize our safety in the love of God, Paul asks this first question then of our four questions. First question, in the middle of verse 31, he says, if God is for us, Who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? Make your list, says Paul. I want to know. Now, believer, do you agonize at times over whether your salvation will be lost or stolen or misplaced? Maybe you tolerate, sometimes maybe even encourage 
thoughts of doubt or fear in your mind? Paul says, if the infinite, eternal, omnipotent God is for you, then exactly who could stand against you? Give me the list of names, says Paul. Who could possibly contend with this God who is for you? Who could wrestle you away from him, from his omnipotent grip? Ah, you say, God indeed is powerful, I acknowledge that. And no one could pry his fingers back and steal me out of his grip, I know. But how do I know that he cares to hold on to me in the first place? Why would he bother? Why would God bother with someone like me? Why would he extend his infinite power to protect and cherish someone as insignificant as me? Well, that's a fair question because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty insignificant. Is God so busy? Is he so big that he will just overlook you and his salvation will slip through your fingers and disappear? Paul says, okay, fair question. He answers, as Jesus often did, he answers that question with a question of his own. Verse 32. The question is, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, Paul's going to answer that, not directly, but by asking a question of his own. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he, how will God not also with him, the son, freely give us all things? God didn't spare his own son. How will God then not also freely give us all things? Basically, Paul's question is drawing your mind to the fact that God's love is not like some kind of a, a summer thunderstorm. Uh, you, get, you get rain in the winter here, so I don't know if this illustration works for you. But where I grew up in South Dakota, we get rain in the summer thunderstorms. Now, summer thunderstorm, what does it do? It comes, it dumps its rain, and it goes. An hour later, other than the water dripping off the leaves and the tree, it's like it wasn't even there. God's love is not like that thunderstorm. God's love is more like the waves on a beach. When you go and you stand on the sand on the beach and you watch the wave, one comes in. And right after that, there's another. And then there's another. And there's another. And that love never stops washing up the beach of a believer's life. Paul says God's love never stops rolling in. And what he does here is he argues from the greater to the lesser. This is a standard way of arguing. He argues from the greater to the lesser. The idea is this. God gave you the greater thing, his son. He will give you the lesser thing, continued grace. That's the argument. And you can see it in verse 32. He did not spare his own son, delivered him over his beloved son for us all. Isn't he going to give you everything else that you need spiritually? Now, let me give you an illustration. My father-in-law loves car racing, so Poppy, this one's for you. Right? Suppose you were a Formula One race car driver. Right? In South Africa, I'd say Michael Schumacher because I think he was born in South Africa or something like that. So everyone knows who he is, but whoever the fast guy is now, right? Suppose you were the world's best Formula One race car driver. Now, as the most gifted race car driver in the world, your sponsor would be happy to provide you with a multi-million dollar state-of-the-art race car. 
Your sponsor gives you an engine that can take you to the moon and back. The best tires, the best equipment, the best support crew possible. He gives you all that. He hires you as a driver and says, oh, by the way, you've got to pay for your own gas. <laughs> and you're practicing when you're racing. The gas is on you. Is that how it works for race car drivers? Well, no. Having given you a race car worth the gross national product of some African countries, your sponsor's not going to drop the gas bill on you. In the same way, having given you the greater, his beloved son, there is nothing in the universe more precious to the father than his beloved son. This is my beloved son, is the way the father always introduced his son in the Gospels, isn't it? He has given you that which is most precious to you. He'll give you everything else you need. That's argument, Paul's argument. He who did not spare his own beloved, precious, dear, eternal son, but delivered him over for us all. In the words of Isaiah, he delighted to crush his son. How will that same father not also with the son freely give us all things? And so the question is, are you safe with God? And the answer is, well, yes. As a believer in Jesus Christ, yes. Why? Because he gave you something so precious, so utterly priceless, his son, that he'll be sure to look out for all the lesser needs you have. As a believer, you're safe in God's love because he's given too much to abandon you now. You see, God's all in. He's going to go all the way with you because he's given you his son. There's no cutting his losses here. He's all in. He'll go all the way. So are you safe with God's Paul, God? Paul's first answer is, well, yes, you are. He's given you too much to back out now. Now, starting in verse 33, Paul asks a second question. He asks a second question here, highlights the fact that the believer is safe with God. Verse 33. Second question, who will bring a charge against God's elects? And he says, God is the one who justifies. If God justifies, if God's in the judge seat, who in the world is going to bring a charge against God's elects? We're safe in the love of God because God won't abandon us. And then secondly, because Satan can't steal us. You say, I'm not sure I see the word Satan in verse 33. Let me show you how we can come to that. Paul asked, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, that word charge was a technical word in Greek for bringing an accusation in a court of law. It's used that way all over the book of Acts, for example, as the Jews accuse Paul before the Roman judicial authorities. Biblically speaking, who is the accusation factory? Who's the accusation factory? Who will bring a charge or an accusation against God's elect, against us? And the answer is, well, maybe a lot of people, but certainly Satan. And to remind you of that, you can turn over to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, John is seeing a scene in heaven. He says, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old. Revelation 12, 9. He's called the devil and Satan. Deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why is that? For the accuser of our brethren 
has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is busy from dawn to dusk, says Revelation 12. He is busy, even works evenings, accusing us before God. Now, even his name in Hebrew, it's Ha-Satan in Hebrew. Ha means the in Hebrew. The Satan actually means the accuser. That's what his name means. If you have any question what that looks like, all you have to do is remember the opening chapters of the book of Job. God lionizes Job as a trophy of his grace. What does Satan do? Brings accusations. He says, ah, God, Job loves you only because of what you do for him. Only because you protect him. Only because you treat him special. Take away the blessings, Job will curse you. That's the accuser doing what the accuser does. In that case, making false accusations against Job. Satan is his name because he is the accuser of the brethren. Now, to turn back to Romans 8, whoever else would be in the line to, to queue up to bring accusation against you, I think we can at least say Satan is at the front of the line. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now we can understand Paul's question. Whoever else might bring an accusation against us in God's kingdom? A lot of people probably would be elbowing their way into that line. But you know what? Satan will bring it. Revelation 12 says he's doing it right now, night and day, before God. And it's not as if he lacks ammunition, right? It's not as if he lacks evidence when he's bringing accusation against you. With Job, he kind of had to make some things up, didn't he? Unfortunately, that's probably not the case with you and me. And so you start to think, should I fear? Should I be afraid? Will this most crafty of prosecuting attorneys, the accuser, will he get me convicted on a technicality or more likely? Will the avalanche of evidence that he can bring against me of my sin, will that turn God irrevocably against me? With every twist, with every trick, with every scheme available to him, with stacks of condemning evidence against me, will Satan bring a charge of guilty And make it stick? In a word, will Satan steal your salvation? Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It really doesn't matter, does it? If God has declared you not guilty. Satan, the prosecuting attorney, has mounds of evidence, but God's verdict in the courtroom is not guilty. You say, how does that work? God is a righteous judge. He would never do that. He doesn't twist justice. He's not going to lift my face, regard my face, and say, oh, it's Joel. Okay, we'll let him off. God doesn't do it. God knows the evidence, but he also knows that he put all those sins that Satan rightly brought against you, he brought, put, God put all of those on his beloved son, the sinless one, Jesus Christ. Christ got your sin and your punishment. You got Christ's perfect life and his eternal reward for living it. On the basis of a substitute, Christ for you, the sinless for the sinner, the flawless for the guilty. On the base of that, basis of that substitution, God declared you 
not guilty. Now, imagine the scene, if you would, in a courtroom for a moment. God says on the basis of a substitute, not guilty. Satan, the prosecuting attorney, is furious. He has been outmaneuvered yet once again by the love of God. Satan rants and rages and raves against God. But to what higher court will he appeal? Where is he going to go with the verdict? Who brings charge against God's elects? God is the one who justifies. You have to understand the significance of that statement as Paul lays it out for us here. And bring it into our own court system in the United States for a moment. If you are falsely accused of murder, for example, and your case eventually rose to the highest court of the land, to the Supreme Court, would you be safe once the Supreme Court declared you innocent? Well, once the Supreme Court's heard your case... You can't be tried for that crime again. You're safe from accusation because the highest court available has passed the verdict. Not guilty. When God declared you righteous, based not on your righteous deeds, based not on your unrighteous deeds, but based on the perfect, flawless righteousness of Christ... When God declared you not guilty or righteous based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, the highest court in the universe spoke past its verdict. There's no appeal. The accuser's mouth has been taped shut. In Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, inside that circle, in Christ, you are safe. Why? Because Satan can't steal you away. There's no higher court. The verdict cannot be overturned. Go home and celebrate. The case is over. The victory has been won. The judge has passed his verdict. Not guilty in Christ. Jesus expressed that a wonderful way in the Gospel of John. Just flip over to John 10 momentarily. John's Gospel, chapter 10. Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. And one of the glorious aspects of his shepherding is this. John 10 verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. And if that weren't enough, in verse 29, then he says, My Father, who has given them to me, a grace gift from the Father to the Son, well, my Father's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Not out of my hand and around the Son's hand is the Father's hand as well. Double up the omnipotence. Christians are safe. In Christ, because God won't abandon us, and not even Satan can steal us. Now, as we turn back to Romans 8, we find a third question, which also highlights our unassailable security in Jesus Christ. The third reason we are safe in the love of God is because Jesus is defending us. Jesus Christ himself is defending us. Third question comes in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, I want to pause for a moment and say, have you noticed something curious about the questions that Paul has been asking up to this point in this text? He doesn't answer any of them, really. Did you notice that? He doesn't even answer any of those first three questions. He'll answer the fourth. He'll give us some options there. But in the first three, he doesn't even bother to give an answer. His point is, if God is for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. Make your list, crumple it up, and throw it away. Because if God is on the other list, then it doesn't matter. If God has declared us righteous... It doesn't matter who brings an accusation. If Jesus is working for us, then it doesn't matter who condemns us. See, Paul never answers those first three questions, and he wants you to see the significance of it. When God is for you, when God is defending you, when Christ is defending you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Here's an illustration. This works where we live in Pretoria. I don't know what the ground is like here in in, uh, in Oregon, but uh, in Pretoria, here's what happens. You go out in your, in your garden, your yard to work. You, you put a shovel in the ground, and about this far below the dirt, you'll hit a rock. That's just how it works, right? You hit a rock. You get that ding, 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 right? Okay, well, you say, okay, well, there's a rock there. I'll dig a little bit to the left, and you do the same thing, ding, there. Dig a little bit to the right, and ding, you hit the same thing over there. Nothing but stone. Eventually, it doesn't matter where you go in your yard or your garden, you realize there's a rock about the size of an aircraft carrier under your front yard, and you're not going to get through it. You're never going to get through it. You're never going to get around it. That's what it's like, says Paul. For one who wants to oppose, for one who wants to bring a charge against, one who wants to condemn a believer in Jesus Christ before God. Everywhere they dig, they run into this impenetrable stone called God, this immovable rock. Everywhere you turn in this passage, God is fighting for you. The Spirit is interceding in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8. Romans 8. The Father is eternally decreeing in verses 26 and 27. Sorry, verse 28 through 30, sorry. The Father is eternally decreeing in 28 to 30. He is the Father for us in verse 31. He sends the Son on our behalf in verse 32. He declares us innocent in verse 33. In verse 34, Christ, the only remaining person in the Trinity, He joins the divine battle group as well. And so you have Father, Son, and Spirit's. It's like having the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force all on your side. Are you feeling safe yet? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all for you. In salvation, there is no fear, there is no apprehension, there is no danger, there is no terror of judgment because Christ has taken it all and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are there to defend you. Now, Paul highlights the Son, especially here in verse 34. Believers in Jesus Christ are safe in God because God won't abandon us, Satan can't steal us, and because Christ is defending us. His question, verse 34, is who is the one who condemns? And again, he challenges you, in essence, to make a list. Who might 
condemn you before God. You say, well, you know, I mean, there's parents who know I'm bad and there's, you know, the people in my workplace and my brothers and sisters and my family and, you know, maybe this, you know, other person in my life. You know, that list could actually be pretty long. The list is irrelevant in the end. Why is it irrelevant? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He already said that in 8.1. There's no condemnation. Why not? In God's court, the wages of sin is? Okay, one person said it. Okay, let's try it again. I know I snuck this one up on you. Okay, In God's court, the wages of sin is? Death. Now, do you get Paul's answer? Who is the one who condemns? Doesn't matter. Christ Jesus is he who died. There it is. If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no death condemnation left for you. Why not? Christ took it on the cross. Who is the one who condemns? doesn't matter who condemns because Christ Jesus took your death condemnation on the cross. Every last drop of condemnation that God had stored up for you was poured out on Christ at his death. At the cross, the bucket of God's wrath was upended and dumped over the head of Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation left. You can turn that bucket up. You can run your finger around the inside of it. There's no moisture left. Every drop of condemnation went on Christ. Since Christ died bearing the wrath of God for you, the condemnation gun is out of bullets. Can you be sure? Paul's answer earlier in Romans is yes, you can be sure. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Romans 4.25 He was raised because our justification worked. That's the stamp, the seal of approval, the certainty. And if you doubt if Christ was successful, well, then just look where he's seated here in verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Doesn't matter. Christ Jesus took the condemnation of death. Yes, rather, who was raised? Romans 4.25, that assures that God approved his death. And who is at the right hand of God? wonder whether Christ was successful, just look where he's sitting. The right hand is the place of success. It is the place of honor. Jesus' resurrection and his sitting at the right hand of God doubly confirm that he successfully bore your condemnation. And so, are you safe with God? Truly a believer in Jesus Christ? The answer is unalterably yes. Now, we understand that does not mean that you can just go and live wickedly. Romans 6 is there to address that. We have peace with God, but that doesn't mean we just go and sin with impunity and just do whatever we want as if we could mock God's grace. No, true believers desire to live in holiness to reflect the character of their lords. But sometimes we do fail. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we sin. What happens then? Do we move from grace back to condemnation? Paul says, no, you're safe with God. You need to repent and ask God's grace, forgiveness, sure. But you're safe. Why? Because Jesus, the high priest, is busy applying his death to you day and night. Remember Satan working day and night to accuse you before God? Now look at the end of verse 34. Jesus died for you. He was raised. That proves that he was successful. He's at the right hand of God. What is he doing there? He is also perpetually interceding for us. Jesus is the high priest who offered himself for our sins. Now what he does, sitting there in heaven as he spends every minute of every day, and it feels like sometimes that's what it takes, doesn't it? 
Every minute of every day, he's there applying his finished work to you. To intercede and to make to an appeal, a petition, to plead for someone. And so the picture is clearly this. Every time a Christian sins, Jesus sits between you, the sinner, and God, his Holy Father. He sits between and he appeals to his Father to apply his death to that sin. And yes, that one. And that one too. We don't want to sin as believers in Jesus Christ, but when we do, Christ is defending us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able also to save those, save completely those who draw near to God through Him. How can He do that? Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Through His death, through His resurrection, and through His perpetual intercession, we are, for believers in Jesus Christ, safe with God. Again, that doesn't mean we just run out and sin. Of course not. But it's a guarantee for those who hate sin and love Christ. Hate the sin we sometimes still do. It's a guarantee that we are still safe in the gracious love of Christ. Now, you're safe with God because God won't abandon you, because Satan can't steal you, and because Christ is defending you. In verse 35, we find the fourth and final question about a believer's safety. We are safe in the love of God because suffering can't separate us. Question number four, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, wouldn't that be your greatest fear if it were possible to be separated from Christ? I mean, think of Roman Catholicism where they hold this over people's head. Wouldn't your greatest fear, it would not be things like the condition of the stock market, International terrorism, your physical safety, the politics of your country, your bank account. It wouldn't be anything like that. Your greatest fear, if it were possible, would be that someone, somewhere, somehow could separate me from the greatest love that I have ever found. From the greatest love in the universe, from that thing that I need more than oxygen. Is there anything that can separate me from the love of God in Christ? To illustrate it, the word separated here was the word that Jesus used for divorce in Matthew 19.6. Picking up on the marriage illustration, Paul said in Ephesians 5 that all Christians have, as the church, been wed to Christ as the bride of Christ. Could this marriage end in divorce? Is it like a human love that can fade or be enticed away? Are we safe in the love of God? Unalterably, unchangeably, and unfailingly safe. For the believer, there is nothing and no one that can interfere with God's eternal determination to love you. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And this time Paul actually does give you a list. Will tribulation, stress, how about persecution? That's probably coming in our country any day soon. Famine, nakedness, peril or sword? Here Paul lists some possible answers to his question. It's a list that needs little explanation. I can summarize it in one statement. 
the worst thing that could happen to you in this life cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Not the violent antagonism of unbelievers. If they burn you at the stake, all they're doing is sending you to Christ, not separating you from Christ. Not the physical sufferings of hunger or nakedness or the danger of war. And by the way, let me point out that for Paul, this was not a contrived list. This was not an imaginary list. This was not a what-if list. Paul had personally experienced all these things. Remember the Corinthian letters? He talks about all these. Paul knew both theologically and experientially in his own life that the very worst that this world can give cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Many years ago, I read to my family when the kids were young, The, the Hiding Place. Remember that book? The Ten Boom Sisters, uh, Betsy and Corey Ten Boom. Two elderly spinsters found that even in the Nazi death camp of Ravensbrück, where 96,000 women died under unspeakable conditions, they found that not even there were they outside of the embrace of Christ. Not even systematic starvation, brutality, disease, extermination ovens, not even that can snatch you from the gracious grip of the love of Christ. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or, or how about distress or persecution? Let's add famine to the list. Maybe nakedness or peril or sword. Just as is written. This was reality for Paul. For your sake, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. One commentator translates it this way. In all these things, we are gloriously winning. (laughs) I like that. In Christ, apparent defeat is transformed into overwhelming victory. Why is that? Because we're safe in the love of God. For I'm convinced, writes Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here Paul lists ten things that can't separate you from Christ. And the list is indeed exhaustive. Neither death nor life. That's the extent of life on this earth. From conception to death itself. Nothing from that starting point, from pillar to post, and nothing in between can separate you from the love of Christ. Neither angels nor principalities. Not good angels, not bad angels. Nor things present nor things to come. God is eternal. Time can't separate you from Him. Nor powers, God is omnipotent. No one can wrestle the omnipotent God and steal you away from his embrace. Nor height, nor depths, God is omnipresent. There is no place that you can go that he is not there to love you. And lastly, verse 39 says, nor height, nor depth, nor nor any other created thing. That's pretty inclusive. 
nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nor any other created thing. That's everything besides God, right? If you draw a circle and you put the created things in one circle and the uncreated in the other, well, you have everything in one circle and God in the other. And if no created thing, that includes you, by the way, if no created thing can separate you from God, then who's left? Well, only God himself. Only God is uncreated, and that's God, the Father, who gave his beloved, precious Son for you. The God who declared you righteous by pouring out his wrath on his Son and crediting Christ's righteousness to you. It's the God, God the Son, who, who, who died for you and who's busy right now sitting at the right hand of God, interceding with His Father to apply His death to you endlessly, perpetually. It's God the Spirit who is indwelling you and who intercedes for you as well. You see, if no created thing can separate you from God's love and God is 100% for you, then what's left? In Christ, you're safe. That's what's left. There's no condemnation. This marriage won't end in divorce. Death can't separate you from the God who has the power of life. Angels and men cannot separate you from the God who is sovereign. Time can't separate you from the God who is eternal. Powers can't separate you from the God who is omnipotent. Space cannot separate you from the God who is everywhere present. Nothing can separate the true believer from the God who is love. Now, do you know what I find amazing about this passage? In what I would suggest is the most powerful passage in the New Testament on the security of a true believer's salvation, you aren't even mentioned. You're not even mentioned. In the end, it's all God. It's His grace from beginning to end. So are you safe in the love of God? That was our opening question. And the answer is, well, if you've not repented and believed in Christ, given your life to Christ, well, you're not safe. You're still under the wrath of God for your sin. And the eternal danger of hell could be just a single heartbeat away. But if you truly are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have gone to the cross to submit yourself before him, ask his forgiveness for your sin, you know what? You're just so gloriously safe, it's unbelievable. You are safe in the unchanging and unchangeable love of God. Now, I face at the end of this sermon the preacher's dilemma. And I would... Form it in this question. How do I conclude a sermon from a passage like this? I mean, what do we do here? Am I going to tell a tear-jerking story? Some flourish of eloquence? With this text, I would suggest to you that the very best thing that I can do is do what the preacher is always trying to do, and that is just get out of the way and let God be heard. So what I want to do in conclusion, you can follow along in your Bible, close your eyes, whatever you want. Just listen to God. 
words that Paul wrote, but these are God's words. Listen to God. Let His voice be heard. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own beloved Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecutions, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, these are your words, your words to the Romans and by application to us. We who were at war with you because of our sin and because of your unimpeachable holiness. We who were at war with you are now through our Lord Jesus Christ at peace with you. We who knew nothing but condemnation fully and richly deserved. We who knew nothing but condemnation now stand safe in the circle of Christ because there is no condemnation. Fear of judgment taken away. It is finished, was our Lord's cry on the cross. It has all been taken. He has turned up the lake of fire on end and drank it dry. There's no more danger. In Christ we are gloriously Lord, we thank you for your gracious love. We thank you for your blessed Son who took the price of our sin on the cross. We thank you for your Spirit who lives within us. Father, Son, and Spirit, God, we thank you for what you have done for us. And we thank you that there is nothing and no one that can ever, ever, ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. We thank you for your grace. Grant it to us as we know you will for all eternity. We give you praise, our great and glorious and loving God. In Jesus' name, amen.